Hi there, my name's Willie Russo and you're listening to Interview with an Artist, the weekly show where we speak with a range of art world players. Sydney-based artist Matilda Michelle loves reading 17th century painting texts. That is, when she can get her hands on them and when she can make sense of them. You see, Matilda has a real affection for the classics and Dutch masters. And never was this more evident in the interview than when she instantly answered the question, who would you like to spend a day in the studio with, dead or alive? This is definitely one of the most technically focused conversations on the podcast, and I think that speaks to what really drives Matilda. In today's episode, we cover a range of things, including the power and importance of light control in Matilda's studio, her thoughts and tips around composition, and how it's necessary as an artist to spend time doing basic practice exercises. Matilda also made a really interesting point about the importance of limiting her visual input in a time in history where every style is being widely practiced. You can see Matilda's rich and broody work over on Instagram at Matilda Michelle. Now enjoy meeting the fascinating Matilda Michelle. Matilda Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on Interview with an Artist. How are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, my pleasure. Now, you, I was looking back over your study path and it took you a couple of courses to finally get into your fine arts study. Talk to us about that. Uh, well, I started with a fine uh, film degree, but it was a kind of um, fine arts film type thing uh, combined with international studies. The international studies bit was really just an excuse to go overseas as part of the degree. Um, and the film thing, I basically just picked something that I'd enjoyed in high school. Uh, but when I got there, I found that um, the slowness of making a film and the, the team component didn't suit me as much as I thought it was going to. I preferred to make things, have total control, make them on my own, at my own pace, um, fail on my own and all that kind of thing. Uh, so it was, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't quite the right thing. And then as part of the international studies thing, I went to Spain for a year and lived there for a year in um, Malaga in the South. And so I saw a lot of really amazing art at that point. And that was, I was sort of painting, but on my own and not really knowing what I was doing uh, before that. And that year I spent a lot of time um, visiting galleries and making a mess in my little apartment with paints without having a clue what I was doing. And that really consolidated for me that I wanted to do fine arts instead. So I came back, I had one year left on my film degree, but I did it as a hand-drawn charcoal animation. I drew like a thousand frames or something. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> again, without knowing what I was doing. But I was sort of felt that that was where I wanted to go. And then following that, that was when I started at the National Art School. Wow. And how did you find art school? Um, it was amazing. The National Art School is really quite small and it's very high contact hours. So I'd gone from doing a BA at a huge office block style uni at UTS where you had 12 contact hours a week to being in this small campus where there were 45 people, I think, in painting in my year. Um, and you did five days a week. I was in Saturdays every day, every week as well. And it was, I think, 25 contact hours a week. So just the sheer um, amount of time was really amazing. And the and quantity of drawing also, because they do a really high proportion of drawing there. 
And that was, was that in 2008 you finished up there? Uh, I oh, think man. it was 2000 and, yeah, it was, yes. That was my last year, 2008. Yeah, I just did the three-year program. Yeah. You have developed a practice that is much loved, so much so I had one person like messaging me repeatedly saying, you need to have <laughs> Matilda on your podcast. <laughs> and I was, I, I have the still life book as well and I love it and you were featured in that with Amber Creswell-Bell. Um, tell us about that process. Um, one of the things I found when I was at the National Art School, I really I really loved my time there and I learned a lot there. Um, but I increasingly found that there, I was seeing things in old paintings that I didn't know how to do um, and that I knew I wanted to do. And that's not something that's taught really as far as I know at any of the art schools at the moment because it's not, it's not the current way of doing things. Um, so I went through a whole, whole process of trying to learn that from wherever I could. I did a course with Michelle Hiscock, who's very good at classical painting type stuff. I read every Nas uh, National Gallery of London technical bulletin I could. I read things and experimented and all that sort of stuff. And I think really one of the things that really excited me was coming across a few Dutch concepts um, from the 17th century, which I've really tried to incorporate into my still life. Because with still life, you normally work from life. And so the temptation is to paint exactly what's there. And when you look at Dutch 17th century, um, there's a whole lot of concepts there that are really fascinating. Uh, as one called Houdings, which is um, to do with the perception of space. And what it basically means is that they're applying essentially atmospheric perspective techniques over really short distances. So when you look at Rembrandt, the paint changes over five centimetres to tell you that that thing is sitting five centimetres further away from you. And that's the kind of thing you can't see but they would create it. And what I found so interesting about that 17th century stuff compared to, say, 19th century was that um, they were effectively painting things that weren't visible in order to create the pictorial space in the painting. And so that's what, like, a lot of the time, uh, the sort of atmospheric side of painting, what I'm, I'm inventing a lot of that. It's not something that's visible, but it's according to those type of rules. And there's a whole lot of other concepts they had at that time. It's remarkably kind of uh, abstract in a way, the 17th century theory, because they were interested in a whole lot of stuff that is not really to do with retinal perception, actually. Why do you think it's not taught now? Or what, it sounds like you've almost done your own kind of apprenticeship on it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's um, I think that... 19th century technique is more taught um, because it's better documented, it's easier to read, and it hasn't had such a break historically. There was a huge break in techniques, I think, where, you know, with various different art movements and things. But when, when you try and go back to look at classical techniques, the 19th century ones are a bit easier to get a handle on because they write in a sensible way. <laughs> Whereas those 17th century texts, I just finished one, and oh, they go on, you know, it takes them bloody, you can't understand what they're talking about. And they tend to emphasise, um, they're very keen on emphasising the intellectual component rather than the practical component, because the practical component was a given. They thought, well, everyone knows that, they're learning it in the, in the apprenticeships and whatever. 
and they were very keen to um, emphasise the side that was more about where these intellectuals, not just craftsmen. So it's really hard to dig out that information. Um, and there's a lot of myths around it. You know, that's why I look to the National Gallery of London, because they actually analyse things and you can sort of try and get to the bottom of it. But ultimately, there's such a huge gap and nobody really knows the answers to a lot of that. So they're interesting pathways, but ultimately, I just take the bits that do what I want them to do, regardless of whether I'm certain that anyone else did them or not. Yeah, okay. And is that, I know you um, you are teaching a course coming up, or has it started yet, or are you in the midst uh, No, of... it's starting next term, So that, and that's term. going to be to do with classical painting techniques, yes. because... Um, I have taught that before, but sort of in amongst other things. And increasingly, I feel like when you look at those type of techniques, the, the actual techniques themselves are reasonably simple. They're geared to be simple. Like when you look at those old paintings with, you know, 50 people and rearing horses and battle scenes and flowing robes and stuff, it, it has to be simple, the actual concept of it. Um, it can't be a total struggle to just paint an apple. In, in if you're going to paint that sort of complexity um, but the the skill is in selecting when you do what selecting you know so there's usually a very small manageable palette but you've got to select the colors just right in order for the palette to work well and so I really want to do some I wanted to teach something where um, we go over that stuff repeatedly rather than introduce a totally new way of doing things every week to go kind of deep narrow and deep yeah exactly yeah and I think also I have realized for myself because you know I think I'm kind of getting a handle on this stuff and then you read something else and you think oh it's such a different mindset um there's so many inherited ideas about what art even is or the processes around it so when you go further back um you're carrying with you all this modern baggage in terms of how you interpret it um and it's I think even for people who are experienced from a modern point of view, it's a huge head shift to look at a completely different um, approach at that time. Yeah, right. And it, what would you say your ratio at the moment is of painting still life and painting portraiture or figures? Do you Are you kind of leaning uh, one way or the other? I go back and forth a bit. And uh, um, I find it really useful to switch genres too. So I'm doing a bunch of landscape painting at the moment. Um, and that, uh, because of what I was saying about, because I use atmospheric type perspective effects in still life, even though they're not visible, it's really useful for me to go outdoors and see them in practice, because uh, I can bring all of that back into the back into the still life work. And similar with figure, I do I normally do little bursts of different things. Figure's a bit harder at the moment, obviously, because we're in lockdown <laughs> and I, I haven't got any models except my family <laughs> and myself. Uh, <laughs> um, but same thing. There's a whole lot of a whole lot of issues that crop up when you do figure that don't exist in still life, um, in terms of process and composition and all sorts of other things. And so I find it's really nice to switch a little bit because each one sort of feeds the other. Yeah. What does a day in the studio look like for you when you're kind of right in the groove of things? I tend to work in batches because I find because um, I'm working in layers it makes good sense for me to do a few at a time and to work. I also find it's a diff, quite a different headspace. Say the composing side is a certain headspace and it makes sense for me to compose three or four 
uh, at once. So that might take me a whole day just tinkering around, moving things around and changing light and all that sort of stuff before I even start. And then the, the first stages around drawing are, you know, very sort of analytical and, um, uh, you know, uh, rigorous in terms of checking things and cross-checking things and stuff. So I find it works better if I do a few at once and go through each stage on all of them at the same time. Um, but I tend to work in batches. So if I'm working on still life, I'll most likely do three still lives at once. Uh, and if I'm doing, you know, um, some landscapes at the moment, I'm going out every morning at six o'clock and doing little morning studies, um, which is nice. So it really varies depending on what I, what my interest level is, or I'll have, you know, I had a, if I suddenly think I need to do some anatomy, I'll do that for a couple of weeks. It tends to be in batches rather than a bit of everything at once. Yeah. And what's your top tip for composition of a still life? Um, composition is a tricky one because there's so many rules and it can be, in the end, slightly exhausting to hear about all of them. And ultimately, composition is an instinct, I think, and any rules that you use should help and support the instinct rather than get in the way of it. I think that's really important. But the And so I like the really broad compositional rules. There's one in a lot of older classical stuff about uh, the balance between uni unity and variety. So if you have something completely unified, you know, you have one thing, it's right in the middle, it's perfectly balanced. It's, it can be a little boring or like a bit unmemorable in some way. But if you have total variety, it's chaos. So they tend to be this thing about balancing unity and variety. And in the older paintings, they do it in all sorts of ways. They'll vary the height of the objects. They'll vary the direction of the objects. They'll vary textures. So they have like a metal thing, a, a glass thing, a ceramics thing. Um, but they're not varying everything. So you see often little devices like they'll have, say, three apples running across the front, but they're all at different directions to each other. So that kind of idea, I think, is really open because once you start thinking in terms of varying forms or contrasting forms, you don't have to always do it in a classical way. So you can vary temperature. Like I've done one where I did three glasses of water, one boiling, one iced, one oh. normal. Or you can vary wet and dry or you can so I think once you start thinking that that's the basic premise you can set up something I did one once as well where I did um, a whole heap of Campbell's soup tins so you set up something that isn't varied and then your problem is how are you going to vary that yeah. you can pile them up you can crush them you can turn them or whatever so I like those really broad ones that allow you to uh, especially with classical painting to move out of their original concept into something that's a little bit more flexible because when you read the old treatises they're very very bossy about composition <laughs> um <laughs> they're really you know they sort of say and if you the one i just read it says oh, it's got this whole list if you want to dress someone in apple green these are the acceptable colors to stand next to them they're really like to a modern eye very over prescriptive so I think if you can kind of whittle out what the basic general premise is and then you're free to interpret in lots of different ways. Yeah if you look back over your career to date um, what would you say has been a couple of the highlights? Um, <laughs> it's funny I don't even feel like I've had a career I don't know I like I just I think you're so just working on the painting and so much of the time is just you in your studio 
trying to work things out, that the career side of it feels very separate to me. So I've had things that I, I suppose in a career in a career sense are the highlights, like uh, winning the Waterhouse Prize was a really big deal for me because it was straight out of art school. But I think ultimately for most people, those really big deal moments are actually your personal breakthrough moments about something, about getting something or like really understanding a new technical thing or whatever. And the rest of it is a little bit, it always feels a bit separate to me, like yeah. some other some other person's <laughs> someone else's life <laughs> it was like it was really nice being in that still life book actually because that was when I actually got a copy of the book it was really nice to see what a lot of high quality work there was going on in still life in Australia that was really nice and to feel like in there was such a broad variety but so much really good work can you remember the last time you've um like you've had a, a technical breakthrough or a personal breakthrough in that sense um I think, oh, I think I think I'm having them all the time. <laughs> I'm just thinking about that a little bit. I think my most recent one was probably, there's a couple of things. One is um, about how incredibly simplified the palette is in, in classical painting because I read something about um, Van Dyck's paintings and they're, they're generally a single layer, so they're not nearly as complicated in terms of layering as you'd think they are. And for the most part, when they assess those things, there's no more than three pigments in any given part. Um, they're incredibly simplified in terms of the actual components. And that's one of the things I did something recently where I realised, especially when you're breaking things down into sections, how incredibly simple you can go and how freeing that is in terms of the brushwork. And the other one, which is maybe slightly related in terms of brushwork, is that I've just suddenly developed this interest in the Japanese sumi painting, which is really emphasises simplicity of brushwork execution. Okay. So it's a bit sideways, but um, that's something that I'm just happen to be excited about at the moment because they've got the most incredible brushwork in the in that art um, and always super to the point, you know, one stroke only if that's all it takes. I haven't really finished looking at, into that. I've just started that, so I don't know that much about it yet. I get the feeling you're a big reader. Yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I am quite. I've um, I've just got a new I've just got a new book as well, which I'm really excited about, which is uh, Hoog Stratton, who was a pupil of Rembrandt's, who wrote a treatise in painting, which I've never been able to get in English and I've now finally got. Um, but then you open it and it's just impenetrable. <laughs> so it's going to take me a while. I can't report on that for like a few months, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> Where do you find all your books? Those ones, like one leads to the other, I, I guess. Like the the big deal book for me, mostly in terms of technical stuff, was Ernst van der Vettering's work on Rembrandt. He just died recently. He's like the very best Rembrandt scholar. And he wrote a couple of books. Um, and unlike most history books, his books are about technical processes, um, which is very rare. Mostly when you get a Rembrandt book, it tells you when he was born and all that mm. sort of stuff, which I'm not that interested in. Yeah. But Ernst van der Vettering was the head of the research, Rembrandt Research Institute or whatever it's called. Um, and so his books are very technical. And basically I read those, there are two of them, and then followed various leads off of that because he'll mention certain ones. You yeah. can't get hold of everything and you've got to be a little bit careful 
uh, trying to read an old thing when you don't, when you're not an historian, because sometimes they have terminology or words that are um, really misleading if you don't know if you don't know what they mean. Like I spent a long time trying to figure out this particular colour brown pink that kept cropping up in a um, in Bardwell that was, and thinking it was a kind of pink which you would right. Yeah. Turns out pink at, pink at the time meant transfer. It just meant it was transparent, and it was actually this kind of browny yellow, transparent color, you know. So you, it's really uh, a little bit fraught with possible misinterpretation. I think. How did you figure that out? I can't remember. Okay. I, I must. I I can't even remember now. Yeah. I was so annoyed <laughs> when I finally found out. It was such an annoying word to use for transparent. <laughs> Um, do you remember the first piece you sold? It, oh, um, I'm just thinking because I remember selling things in third year and being um, like finding it really nice to have that end of third year exhibition and that people actually wanted to buy things. But I can't remember whether I'd sold anything before that. I think I might have at a like a life drawing group or something when someone just wanted to buy what I'd done but I can't remember that very clearly if it was before or after one of the things that was was quite meaningful to me in third year was that a couple of my teachers bought work in the third year show and that was a really nice affirmation after you've been through three years and you really respect people that they um you know sort of believe in what you're doing enough to actually buy one yeah what do you do to get out of a creative funk I mostly go back to basic practice. Uh, so I think because I think the issue with art is that you're effectively composing every time you sit at the easel and um, you can't do that all the time. So I think sometimes in art we forget about the basic practice side, you know, that you. so I've gone through stages where I've uh, gone through practice around perspective or anatomy or just pencil control, like, just sit there and draw freehand circles or vary lines from light to dark or that kind of thing or uh, paint a sphere you just come up with exercises I do so paint a sphere it's a red sphere it's in yellow light the tabletop's green try and do it from your head and see if you can you know that type of thing um, so I find either just general practice stuff or um, drawing is obviously always good just draw anything you know, that's always a good one to get you out of things. Um, and also I find just a little study from life, some little study from life, because when you get into studio work and it's a bit more involved and you're a bit more, there's more pressure around it or whatever, sometimes I just go off to the side and paint a little mandarin or something <laughs> for a minute just to relieve the pressure. Who would you say has been your biggest cheerleader or supporter? Uh, I don't know, really. Um, what do you mean? Do you mean in art? Yeah, just the person who, you know, when your confidence is lacking, is like, just keep going, you're on the right path. Not necessarily, you know, the major collector, um, but more so someone in your immediate I circle. I think it's probably more important to me, the people I talk to on a regular basis, like other artists. Um, and... I've, I've had, like had a couple, I talk a real lot to Nicole Kelly, um, who I went through art school with. And she's the person I ring up if I'm having a little crisis about painting. 
And she's a very different stylistic register to me, which sometimes people are surprised that we find so much common ground because we disagree on pretty much everything. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I find it really nice to have someone to talk to who isn't in the exact same area uh, because they can just listen to your thing about what you're doing and it's not in direct conflict with what they're doing. Uh, And it's a good balancing reminder for you, I think, to have someone who's a little bit opposed. Um, I also at various times have talked quite a bit to Michelle Hiscock about painting and she's been a really like a source of a lot of information. She's much more in a similar interest area. So when I'm reading texts and things like that, she's likely reading them too and I can discuss them with her. So those two people are probably my main people that I talk painting with. And I think that's like same as what I was saying about the career. I think it's more... It matters more to me if I feel like my studio work's not progressing than if I feel like my career's not progressing. It gets me, you know, it's more, affects me more. And so I think that's why maybe the, the painting people are more important for me to have to talk to. Yeah. How do you deal with your inner critic? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. In a way, teaching has helped me with that stuff because I see things in my students And it's easier to see in someone else, one of which is that my students will uh, praise a certain quality in other people and then criticise it in their own work. So they'll apply totally different standards. So they'll say, I love this loose brushwork in this. This is what I want to do. And then I come around and they go, mine's so messy, I need to tidy it up. And it's a sort of effectively a direct contradiction. Um, And we all do it, I think. So seeing other people do that has made me realise that you don't always have the best perspective on what's work, what's wrong or what like or um, you don't always have a really fair way of assessing your own work and really the best thing is just to not assess things until a decent amount of time has elapsed I think because right on the back of doing it you're not in any position to call judgment on things I don't think yeah what role have art prizes played in your work uh they're a bit of a necessary evil I think like they're great in a way it's a great way to get work in you know single pieces in a variety of shows Um, it's great to see your work in in a broader context I think you've got to be careful not to let it affect the direction of your work too much if you do something that you're really happy with and then it just doesn't get into anything I know so many people that that's happened to Um, but you know that is either that is going somewhere that concept or that feels like it's a good thing so that's the danger of them I think is that you can put too much stock in them and without even necessarily half the time you don't even know who's picked it you know uh, a finalist selection you might know who the judge is you don't even know who the selection panel is so to put too much faith in the opinion of um, a group of three or four people that you don't even know who they are is really dangerous I think and that's easier said than done though because obviously if you you know if you have a you have runs where you get into everything and it's great and then you have runs where you don't get into anything and you're like thinking I thought I was painting well what like what's going on (laughs) um so it's easier said than done that stuff but I think most of the time I just try and paint what I want to paint rather than paint for prizes because if you invest a lot of energy in something for a prize and then it doesn't get into that one that's like a bit depressing you know yeah so the only thing I'll normally do is do something a portrait or two 
um, because there's so many portrait prizes, you can do a couple of those and you, you've got a number of options about where you put them. Yeah. If you could spend a day in the studio with one other artist, dead or alive, who would it be? Rembrandt. <laughs> That's so easy. <laughs> You're the first person to ask so to answer so quickly. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, that one, yeah, that one's really easy question. <laughs> um, what's the one thing in your studio you can't do without? Is there like a tool or a tip or? My lighting in my studio is very important to me. Really, I've got. A couple of glass doors on the front. They don't face the right way, which is just luck of the draw. They're north facing and they should be south facing. But um, when I saw Rembrandt Studio in Amsterdam, he had a whole wall with these little wooden door windows that could each be opened individually to let light through in a directional manner. So I haven't got that. I've got a little wooden frame with Velcro stuck on it and I've got little black uh, squares of felt that I can put on or take off, which means I have total control over the fall of light. I can pull one off and let one little shaft of light through, or I can pull four off. Uh, and I've got the same in my skylights. So it gives me really good control over the fall of light. And that's probably more important to me than any actual sort of physical tools. Yeah, right. How interesting. I'm just picturing Rembrandt's wall with all those little, it must have been quite phenomenal to see. You can imagine it in his, you know, with that those amazing sort of this light that just pierces the yeah. darkness like that. Yeah. 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 What was your last art store splurge? Yesterday. <laughs> Does the splurge doesn't have to be very much to count? No, not at all. Not at all. It could just be the last time you kind of went in and was like, oh, I'd like to try that. Or I don't get a lot of new materials um, because one of the things is I like my materials to do what I expect them to do. Some people like the unexpected in terms of they'll shift mediums when in order to kind of create something new happening in the work but I like really like to know what's exactly what everything's going to do if I've got a raw umber I want to know it's the same transparent exactly the same as last time I used it or whatever so I don't get a lot of new pigments or try new things very much but because of this interest I have in the Japanese ink brush work I did just go and buy a couple of Japanese style brushes um, for ink not for oil and some sumi ink which I haven't had a chance to play around with yet but it's the first time I've probably gone and gotten a new thing in a while yeah nice what do you wish someone had told you before you embarked on this whole art thing I don't know I, I can't really think of anything I don't really feel like there's a side to it that I wish I'd been warned about particularly the actual art world can be a funny one, I suppose, in some ways, but I'm so sort of removed from that. I don't encounter it very much. Is that a conscious decision to be removed from it? Sort of, because I find I, I, I probably don't have a lot of time and I feel I always, not that I can go to openings at the moment, but I always felt like I need the time in the studio. So every time that I go and do something else is a time that I haven't done anything in the studio. But I also feel like, I need to limit the amount of visual input I have. So at the moment, we're in a period in time where there is every style going at once and there's lots of fantastic work, but I need to look at only a couple of people at a time that relate to what I'm doing. And so if I go too much and see 100 different styles, it's I find it 
confusing in terms of my own direction. So I find it's better if I just kind of zone in on what I'm doing. There's a few things from art school that I, from going to art school that I wish I'd known. Like what? Um, well, there's just a, I, having followed the path that I have, there's a lot of things I got told in art school that I now wish I'd, someone had told me not to listen to like not using black but that's a big one for me everyone at art school said you weren't allowed to use black and um as soon as you go a little further back from impressionism everybody uses everyone's using black (laughs) um the few things like that because i I guess it's just the, the stylistic register that is in the teaching institutions at the moment is really from a certain place um and i think ultimately it would be better if when you, and I don't know how you'd do this, but if you, when you went to art school, all styles were open rather than it having this kind of certain period, everyone's doing abstract expressionism and that's everything that's taught or everyone's doing steel welded sculpture that, you know, or whatever. It'd be nice if this diversity that we have at the moment eventually led to the fact that everybody chose their path and was technically supported through that rather than, you know, this is the way we do things at the moment. It almost seems like the coming back to an apprenticeship, having the ability yeah. to work alongside artists. I feel there's a there's value in that as well in the art school makeup. That's a huge point, I think. And a lot of art schools try to with that atelier style, they try to replicate that to some degree of that that apprenticeship style thing. But I think what you said about artists working alongside each other is a really big deal because in the past, you know, you've got Monet and Renoir sitting next to each other painting the same view and all that sort of thing. And I think a lot of people are sort of feeling like most of the time they're working alone these days and that's a real shame. That sort of it would be nicer to share. The few times I've been, because landscape painters seem to get a little more of that, they go Mm -hmm. out together, you know. So the few times I've been out and you landscape paint alongside someone, or I used to model share a little bit with Michelle Hiscock and so we'd be painting the same thing at the same time. You get a huge amount out of that, I think, um, when you paint actually next to somebody. So, yeah, I think more of that would be really good. Where would you like to see your work go over the next couple of years? I'm not sure I think quite so far ahead. I tend to be very invested in whatever it is I'm doing at that moment and not really have quite so much of a forward plan Um, but I think for me ultimately simplicity is very important simplicity in execution and in process and things like that because I think the simpler all of that stuff is and the better you know it the more it allows you to focus on the emotive side of things which is what it's really all about so as much as I can get my drawing skills simplified, my palette simplified, my processes simplified, I think then that's when it feels like it flows the best for me. Matilda, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on Interview with an Artist. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.